Welcome to Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm Matthew Hawkins. Joining me at our offices on Capitol Hill, one of our many friends at the Alliance Defending Freedom, Kate Anderson from ADF's Center for Conscience Initiatives. Kate Anderson, welcome to Capital Conversations. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming across Capitol Hill or across Union Station property to, to see us. So tell us a little bit about the Center for Conscience Initiatives at ADF. What is it and uh, what do you spend most of your time doing? Well, I'm legal counsel with that Center for Conscience Initiative. As you know, Alliance Defending Freedom is a nonprofit legal organization that works for religious freedom, freedom of speech, and freedom of conscience for all people. And that's exactly what the Center for Conscience Initiatives does. Good. We like accuracy and labeling, right? So it seems appropriate. Now, the reason we wanted to have you on to talk about a legal case this week is because in the religious liberty and free speech and pro-life space in particular, there's a really big case being heard at the Supreme Court this week called Nifla v. Becerra. And your boss, Mike Ferris, as I understand it, is making the org arguments. Absolutely. So he's Right now, as we record this, preparing for those arguments, right? No pressure. <laughs> Very much so. But frankly, the Supreme Court territory is not unfamiliar territory for ADF folks anymore. You guys have had a lot of time and attention at the court over the last few years and a lot of wins. We've been blessed with uh, several times to visit the Supreme Court, um, all free speech and freedom of conscience cases. Right. So getting into this case has to do with pregnancy resource centers is the, is the short of it. Who are Nifla and Becerra? And uh, give us the facts of the case. Well, no American should be forced to promote a message that violates their beliefs. And that's exactly what's happening here to our clients, Nifla. Nifla is 130 pro-life pregnancy resource centers. And uh, those centers face a law in California that forces them to advocate for abortion. That violates their beliefs, their conscience, and their very purpose for existence. And that's why this case is before the Supreme Court. Now, full disclosure, not that I have to, but not only do I participate in the pro-life movement as part of ERLC work, but I'm also on the board of a pregnancy resource center here in Northern Virginia. Um, and so this is of particular interest to me and, and some of the folks that I, I work with. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the pregnancy resource centers are really um, the term frontline of whatever uh, is often an overused word, but they really are the front lines of the pro-life movement, providing uh, care to women and families, right? So... What if um, Nifla loses this case? What are the ramifications? Well, you touch on something very important about these organizations. They provide uh, care, personal resources, information, emotional support for women who are facing unplanned pregnancies so that those women can choose life and can bring that life into their families and the community. It's a hugely important resource for the women that visit these clinics. If this case goes against our clients, then they stand to be forced to advocate for abortion, which undercuts their mission. They also, if they don't comply, could face uh, hefty fines. Staggering uh, which, fines, really. Absolutely. And when you're dealing with a nonprofit that survives on the um, goodwill and the donations of the community to right. provide baby supplies, baby blankets, yeah. baby things for women, uh, they're not able to do that at the same level if they're facing these fines. Especially for nonprofits who uh, typically, especially in the social services sector writ large, are already operating on razor thin margins. Absolutely. Right? So tell us about some of the details about the requirements that the California law is trying to impose on pregnancy resource centers. What does this really look like that they would have to communicate, um, basically promote abortion in their own materials and in their own complexes? 
Well, California's law specifically targets pro-life pregnancy centers as the only one subject to these requirements. And the requirements are that they post on their wall as if their wall is a billboard right. advocating for abortion. And that's for licensed clinics. Unlicensed clinics um, are required to provide information that they're unlicensed, which it's silly that California would require them to right. post information about what they're not when they're crystal clear about what they provide right. to the public. Furthermore, there are onerous requirements of the number of languages and the length of the material that makes it impossible for these resource centers to be able to advertise. So not only does it undercut their mission, but it makes it impossible for them to let women who need them know that they are there. Um, to your point about uh, pregnancy resources not being a mystery, there's not a case of false advertising or a pregnancy resource center trying to pass itself off as something other than what it is, right? Not at all. There has never been an allegation that any of the NIFLA clinics have ever um, deceived or misled women. They're right. crystal clear about what they provide, and it's a service that women really need. Right. And to be clear, uh, we would want pro-life care centers to be uh, forthcoming in what they are and what they do and what they provide and what they don't provide. To the point about license versus non-licensing, the licensed folks uh, in, in our context um, in Virginia, we talk about being them being medical clinics versus non-medical uh, organizations. Is that basically the fault line? So a, a licensed clinic um, would basically be uh, doing things like ultrasounds and um, other medically related activity, um, whereas non-licensed um, would be the bulk of their, their only stuff would be uh, support and counseling and material needs kinds of things, right? Yes, the licensed clinic provide uh, some limited medical services, mm -hmm. as you said, ultrasounds, and they'll help diagnose pregnancy with pregnancy tests right. versus the unlicensed clinics will provide um, over-the-counter pregnancy tests the women can take themselves. Both clinics do provide the practical resources necessary for women to welcome a life into their family and their community. Yeah. So my understanding is your case on NIFLA, your argument uh, basically rests on a free speech argument. Tell us why you guys have approached a free speech argument in this case. This is a free speech case, very much so. What's going on here is the government bringing in its uh, coercive power and forcing individuals to violate their conscience in the messages that they promote. In this case, with abortion, they're forcing these clinics to undercut their message and violate their conscience. And that's something that should scare Americans, no matter where they are on the abortion issue, because the ability of the government to take away people's free speech threatens everyone. So what do you expect, if you could give us a tease, you guys might not want to break it out yet, what do we expect from Mike Ferris's arguments when he's at the Supreme Court? Mike is very well prepared, and I expect him to do a wonderful job. Uh, and I expect that the court to hear our arguments well. Uh, they have been concerned about free speech. They've been taking free speech cases regularly, and this is another in that line. The government should not have the power to force any individual to violate their conscience with the messages that they promote, and that's exactly what's happening here. Textbook case. For the sake of argument, uh, is there anything about the opponent's side, um, their arguments, that you'd want to basically... Uh, Make, a, make our listeners aware of. We've heard our opponents try to make this case about abortion, and it really is not. This is a case about free speech, and it's about the right of every American to speak their mind and to decide what messages they'll convey and what messages they won't convey. And that's something that's important to everybody, uh, and that's really what's at stake here. And uh, particularly in the space of like nonprofits and businesses, right, um, when you're forced to convey and, and promote and publish messages that are antithetical to sheer existence as an institution, right? Absolutely. So if NIFLA loses, 
Are there any other ramifications in, say, other areas of public life that you're all concerned about? This is in particular having to do with the Pregnancy Resource Center, but are there other issues that you could see a bad decision bleeding over? Any area of speech, any decision that cuts away at American freedom to speak freely um, can influence all areas of life. Uh, and as we can see, political winds change. So if the government has the power to force one person to promote a message that violates their beliefs, they can force anyone to promote such a message. And that's a very dangerous pre precedent to set. So, Kate, um, before we leave, how can listeners participate in advocacy for NIFLA in particular and other conscience cases pursued by ADF? Uh, just keep aware of the issues. Uh, on this particular issue, you can get more information at givefreespeechlife.org uh, and just follow this case. Kate Anderson, thanks for taking the time to visit with us on Capital Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by MLK50Conference.com. On April 3rd and 4th of this year, the Gospel Coalition and the ERLC are gathering a diverse group of Christian leaders in Memphis, Tennessee for MLK50, Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop, a conference marking the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. In Memphis, we will evaluate the condition of racial unity in the American church across the past 50 years and reflect on what we might learn from the life and work of Martin Luther King Jr. Speakers include Russell Moore, Ben Watson, John Piper, Jackie Hill Perry, Matt Chandler, and many more. Join us as we seek to be voices within the church for racial unity. You can find more information and register for the conference at mlk50conference.com. That's mlk50conference.com. Podcast listeners, enter code DC20 for 20% off. Hope to see you in Memphis. Next up is our roundtable segment with our fellow ERLC staffers that we always like to do. Jeff Pickering is on the mic. Welcome. Thanks, Matt. And Travis Wousseau. Welcome <laughs> back. You couldn't see how awkward Jeff was. He was like sitting at the mic very awkwardly. With this like, big, really <laughs> odd grin on his face. Oh, yeah. man. He's really happy to be I'm here. I'm an optimistic person. <laughs> it's, it's not cold outside. The sun is shining. That's I'm true. sorry for smiling. <laughs> That's true. It called for rain today. There's no rain. It did. There's snow in, in the forecast this week. Snow in the, I know. Yeah. <laughs> there, there goes the smile. Yeah. Well, I, I, I honestly do feel – I know. I feel the same way. I feel like I used to feel in October, like early October in Texas where you're just so tired. Of the heat. Of the heat. Right. Exactly. I'm like just worn down. I'm just like ready. We're ready for spring. Ready for spring. It's March already. Yeah. Ready right. for spring. All right, guys. Let's talk about what we've been paying attention to over the last week and what we're paying attention to this week. Um, just had a guest on, Kate Anderson from ADF, who talked about the NIFLA case. Uh, it's a case in which we filed an amicus. Uh, Travis, you just want to underscore our perspective on that case? Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I'm sure that you guys. I wasn't in for the interview, but um, I'm sure that you guys went through the importance of the case. But you know, the the California law at issue really is a fairly dramatic overreach into pregnancy care centers into religious speech. I mean, the the, the way that they've characterized uh, commercial speech, is, I mean, truly is breathtaking. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it means that there is no speech that would be left unregulated um, by the state government if California's laws is able to stand with their understanding of what, what commercial speech is. And so, I mean, we, I mean, we think it's important in case not, not just for pregnancy resource centers, but for all kinds of other issues. Uh, so it's a case that we've been watching very carefully and, you know, we're anxious to see how the oral argument goes tomorrow. And something that you've been paying attention, you and uh, Jeff both have been watching the news on are uh, some really terrifying developments yeah, in bombings. Austin, Texas. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. 
Yeah. So this morning was the fourth uh, bombing. It was like a package bombing mm-hmm. uh, that's happened in Austin over the last two or, two or so weeks. And yeah. goodness, you know, they're they look, started out in southeast and uh, then northeast, northeast and now and southwest, southwest, right? Yeah, so. I believe. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, after the first one of these happened, you know, we, I reached out to friends, you know, nobody really knows much information because the, right. it seems like the authorities are withholding some of the information that they have, perhaps strategically or, or whatever. But, um, but after this bombing this morning, I think, you know, there, there's definitely an increase in concern among my friends about what's going on. And Right. And now it's, I mean, I was seeing headlines now, news organizations are using the term, there's a serial bomber yeah, serial bomber that right. is out there right yeah and you know i i think it it reminds me you know in some ways like viscerally reminds me of the the sort of fear of terrorism that you know i think we all sort of experienced after you know in the wake of 911 you know anytime you were back at an airport or flying or or you know at a large event or anything like that and that you know we experienced um Living, living in Jerusalem in, in 2015 and 2016, which were were not the hottest years of terrorism that that Jerusalem has had, but but there you know there was an uptick of violence when we were there, and you know I think one of the things that you know one of the things that I've been thinking about and, and praying for my friends back in Austin is that is that they wouldn't wouldn't lose heart, wouldn't wouldn't be fearful, but you know I think one of the challenges in any time that you're faced with terrorism is the fear that you experience is somewhat irrational in the sense that the likelihood of, you know, we're talking about four, I mean, I, I'm, the, these are four significant in, incidents. They impacted real families. I, and right. what, what I'm about to say is not intended to minimize that or take it away. I mean, it, these are tragic, tragic events, but the chances of it happening to you are low. They're very low, but the fear that it inspires in you is, is way outsized in terms of the, the actual probability that, that something is going to happen to you. Which and, is kind of the point of terrorism in the first yeah, place, right? Well, it, I, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, that, that's the whole idea behind it. And, you know, we're certainly praying that, um, you know, that the investigators are, you know, that their minds are sharp, that they're able to work quickly, and that, you know, our, our friends are able to minister. You know, these times, I mean, I, I just remember how an uptick in violence in Jerusalem would in some ways, I mean, it, it, in some ways it, it drove the two communities, Israelis and Palestinians further apart, Mm -hmm. but within those communities, it drove people together. And, um, you know, obviously you don't have the same sort of like two sided dynamic in Austin. And, you know, it's, it's a time when people are asking big questions, um, and are more open to those kinds of conversations. So, you know, I, I pray that, that God uses that in Austin to reveal himself to people and, uh, and also to draw, communities together, you know, closer together, um, you know, but ultimately, of course, we hope that, you know, whoever is doing this is caught, I mean, immediately before this Brian's podcast justice. airs. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope that this whole thing is like a, a waste of time yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's all done before this thing has been cut and posted. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Jeff, another issue that we've been watching this week is, uh, is immigration. So this week, uh, the, right. on Friday of this week is when government funding uh, runs out. Uh, so the House and Senate have been working on it on a big spending bill. Yeah, it's been negotiating huge. this for. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been negotiating it since last summer, but you know, here yeah, we are. Here we are. Next week is a recess, so the likelihood of another short-term CR is pretty unlikely. I mean, it's not impossible. Not impossible. But 
you know, it, it does seem to me that there's a desire to get this thing done. They don't want right. to do it again um, between right. now and Election Day. Right. So, we, right. so we've been tracking right. the Conscience Protection Act is a part of this. There's, a, there's uh, some you know, uh, abortion funding and health care issues, the CSR payments or reinsurance uh, issues. But you've also been right. watching immigration. What's going on there? Right. There's a, there was a thought coming into this week that we could see some sort of a stopgap measure that would uh, – protect uh, DACA recipients from deportation while at the same time funding um, some of the White House's border security measures. So, um, you know, one term that we've heard thrown around is a three for three. So a three-year dreamer, um, not fixed because it would just be, again, a a measure that would just – Just extend it? Basically extend DACA provisions for three years uh, and fund – for three years, the administration's uh, border wall and, and border security funding. So, um, you know, there have been some reports that come out today that look like that possible. Um, again, I don't want to use the word solution for something that's so short term for for a big it's problem. An agreement, but deal. It's an deal. agreement, deal, whatever words you want to use to try to describe this seems to be dissolving. Um, but then we're hearing from. Uh, others involved in the debate alongside us that uh, that might not be so. So things yeah. are in limbo right now, but there are quite a few members on the Hill and, and members of of the administration that are at least interested enough in this particular deal and to do something uh, to both secure the border and provide protections for DACA recipients that if there's enough appetite to have the conversation, then there might be enough appetite uh, to close the deal. Um, yeah. I, th- I think it's in everybody's interest for this issue to go away for for a period of time. I mean, this, especially because the timeline yeah. for when this thing is going to come back is so uncertain. I mean, you, you could have a scenario where the Ninth Circuit uh, overrules the nationwide stay. You know, that could happen next month, in which case DACA is now gone. You had no warning Right. And, uh, you know, and Congress is now like in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of election season and trying, you know, you I mean, the, the worst case scenario yeah. you could imagine is like three weeks before the election, you know, the the nationwide stay is struck down. Right. DACA is is then. So, so just to catch eliminated. everybody up, nationwide stay. So right now the uh, recension of DACA is tied up in the courts. Therefore, it. It stays. It's it's yeah. The program is still up and running. Exactly. I, yeah. Exactly. Right. So, and then the March fifth deadline, which we've talked about earlier on this podcast, essentially meant nothing because now it's tied up in the courts. Well, it didn't mean nothing because as soon as the nationwide stay is gone, then the program is immediately True. eliminated, True. right? And so that sets up a scenario where Congress has to act very quickly, right? Which you know, six months was was not enough time to get a deal done. So, I mean, I, I think everybody's sort of looking for a way to kick this issue into the future. And I think, you know, broadly, we're supportive of that concept, you know, move this issue into a different political environment, give both sides an opportunity to kind of hammer out some of the details uh, and, you know, and so on. But yeah, so we'll continue watching and uh, and driving the biblical arguments that surround the issues involved in immigration reform. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and hope for a good outcome uh, for our neighbors. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, Matt, we were at a lunch earlier today with Ambassador Brownback. We were talking about a couple issues with him. What's one of the international issues that you're focusing on right now? Well, one of the international issues that's been attracting a lot of chatter here in D.C. among international folks is this um, 
situation to do with approximately 100 Iranian refugees who are presently in Vienna, Austria. They are predominantly of a Christian persuasion, um, along with some other religious minorities from Iran. They have fled Iran, most if not all, about a year or so ago on a provisional approval from the U.S. government for refugee resettlement. And they, uh, after being in Vienna for a number of a number of months, unable to work, um, you know, they they have safe housing and that kind of thing, but uh, they haven't been able to go to school, have not been able to work um, in this limbo um, in Vienna. They've recently been denied by the United States um, refugee status, and that perked up a lot of ears around here, particularly those who are both engaged in international religious freedom for all, and particularly who have a mind for. Christians being persecuted around the globe, recognizing that Iran is one of the bad guys when it comes to uh, right. religious freedom, um, among the worst of the worst as a country of particular concern, according to the State Department. Right. And so when you see a, a significant roster, upwards of about 100 folks, be collectively denied refugee status, we all kind of go, wait a minute, what are we doing here? Particularly, it relates to a long-time past piece of legislation called the Lautenberg Amendment that exists expressly to uh, give the U.S. government discretion as far as resettling members of persecuted people groups uh, because of their uh, religious persuasion. That's been uh, long a bipartisan agreement uh, on Capitol Hill um, and the U.S. government. And so uh, this case is uh, raising a lot of questions from the political left and from the political right, basically, saying, wait a minute, these sound like plausible cases for uh, for persecuted people to be resettled in the U.S. So I've seen personally behind the scenes and publicly criticism from both the political left and the political right. So a lot of people are asking questions. Um, we're asking questions. Um, one of the things I think a lot of advocates are looking for is to make sure that each of these individuals and their families are um, individually screened, that they're not kind of lumped in as some kind of group excuse uh, for denial. Some reports are that uh, some of these uh, people who have fled uh, do have security risk issues, uh, but we're concerned about that um, kind of casting a shadow over everybody, uh, particularly maybe family members who are innocent women and children um, who've made the journey. Um, and I think a lot of the groups now, whether or not they ultimately land in the U.S. Um, or whether, they're, whether they have an appeal, there's an idea that's basically saying, look, we need to find some place like a third country uh, right. That's not Iran. Um, that's not the U.S., but that would uh, take in these people because if they go back to Iran, they yeah, would we, we most surely – we, we, right. we know the kind of future that they would face either imprisonment at best probably, um, if not torture and um, death uh, at worst. So um, this is a case that's gotten coverage in the New York Times, World Magazine, Christianity Today, kind of a broad spectrum. Um, and so it's one of the things that we're paying attention and looking into. Um, seems like the main focal point right now is somewhere among uh, DHS and the FBI. Right. And so um, we're trying to have conversations and uh, uh, and see what more information we can glean from that. Um, but we can't be in the position as a country, in my view, to um, give a group of people like that a provisional approval um, from a from a, a persecuting country, yeah. only to then yeah, send have, them back home. Send them back home. Yeah, um, that would be really problematic. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, and there are other options. I mean, I think the right. you know as you mentioned before, you know, finding a third country or finding another option where you know even if we ultimately determine that 
whatever security problems there there are and you know neither neither of us have the security clearance to be able to possess that information for sure um, but whatever whatever those concerns are they may or, you know they may be legitimate yeah um, but I, I think it's you know as you as you said I mean what's 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 crucial is that uh, we don't we don't send uh, persecuted minorities uh, back into a situation that right. they will result in further persecution, you know, and you know, yeah. and or death or imprisonment or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's at least one case study that um, provides um, a potential model. Um, several years ago, there was a a, a group of um, ethnic Muslims from China, uh, Uyghur Muslims, who were um, mm -hmm. placed at Gitmo for a while. Um, right. But it was found that. While they may have some security issues, Git was not an appropriate place for them uh, to be, and so the U.S. found relocation for them. I think in Bermuda yeah. um, was was the ultimate outcome of that case. Um, so there's sticky issues, um, but U.S. needs to be on on the right side of persecuted people. Before we go, Jeff Pickering, yeah, you had an interesting experience last week. Where did you go? I Who did. did you see? I did. Yeah. Did you wear your orange tie? Yes, yes, I wore my orange and blue Astros tie to the East Room of the White House for the Astros World Series uh, championship celebration wow. with the President of the United States. Uh, it was special, man. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a really – I mean, I, I wasn't as starstruck of Jose Altuve and Justin Verlander and George Springer and Manager He just walked up AJ to him and said, hey, guys. Well, I, I wish, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a small room, and that's one of the that's one of the things that's always so interesting about going into most of our government buildings around here is things are so much smaller than they appear right. on TV because these buildings are old. They've right. been here since the capital city was built. So, you know, yeah, walking in to see to see the histories and the presidential portraits uh, was was really was really neat, and and to get to celebrate uh, my hometown team was really cool. Uh, it was a it was a pretty neat experience to hear uh, the president's own Marine Band play baseball tunes. Like so, they were playing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." Oh, nice! At the start <laughs> of the event, and then when the Astros came in, of course, they had to play "We Are the Champions" and then put me in coach. So it was a fun it was a fun way to start the week last week. That's cool. And for listeners, again, we hope that you will see all of us in Memphis, April 3rd and 4th. To get more information on the MLK50 conference, visit mlk50conference.com. That's mlk50conference.com. We hope to see you in Memphis. Podcast listeners, enter code DC20 for 20% off registration. Hope to see you in Memphis. This has been Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Special thanks to Gary Lancaster for editing the audio. Especially today. Especially Thank today. You, Especially thanks, today, Gary. Gary. And to Marie Duff for getting this posted online. Show notes for this episode are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts and other resources to equip you and your church. 